And I think that you can capture or simulate some aspects of intelligence through quantitative methods. But you are always going to leave something out. You're going to leave the things that you can't measure or don't know how to measure or that are unmeasurable. That anything can be unmeasurable, that blatantly goes against one of the primary metaphysical principles of science, which is that everything real can be measured. Science is, in fact, the study of the measurable. If you can't measure it, you cannot do science on it. And that's related to objectivity and the repeatability of experiments. So you have to have like a measure outside of yourself by which to repeat experiments. Ultimately, I think where we're going to go is to realize the limitations of that kind of science, that way of knowing and the technology that comes from it. Greetings, future fossils. This is Michael Garfield welcoming you to another episode of the podcast that explores our place in time. This week is a super long-awaited episode for me with one of my great inspirations, one of my favorite authors, Charles Eisenstein, author of The Ascent of Humanity, Sacred Economics, The More Beautiful World Our Hearts Know is Possible, The Yoga of Eating, and Climate Change, A New Story, which will be out on September 18th. Charles is the one who introduced me to the idea that we could use a metaphor of ecological succession to understand the crisis of civilization. Imagine weeds growing in an empty lot, and they grow and they grow explosively. And it seems as though were you to continue on this trend, they would just take over everything. And that kind of rampant expansion would just coat the entire planet. This is kind of how we think about society already, isn't it? But what happens is that the weeds break up the concrete. They prepare soil in which other things, bushes and trees can grow. And bit by bit, a more diverse, complex, intelligent ecosystem arises in its place. An ecosystem of greater dimensionality and resilience. One in which the growth is not merely outward, but builds upon the sediment of earlier iterations, lives on the mulch, the humus, recycles its nutrients. And this kind of reframing is indicative of a strain I detect through all of Charles's work, a way of helping us learn new stories, stories more in alignment with the world we actually observe, a world in which the catastrophe that we have wrought upon this planet makes a deeper kind of sense. That notion of nutrient cycling appears in prairie fires and forest fires, things that the linear modern worldview considered undesirable, tragic, and yet we now know are necessary. So looking back, as I love to do over the course of life's history, in large, we see a periodic cycle of mass extinctions, and regenerative adaptive radiations following those extinctions. And we begin to sketch a portrait of a biosphere for which the human age and our obsession with the linear consumption, the burning through of all of our so-called natural resources, may actually be part of a stage setting for what comes next. And certainly this kind of perspectival shift that Charles, in all of his work, invites us into is increasingly required of us. 
in an age of transition that forces us to encounter the limitations of our inherited myths and the implied value systems they carry with them. Yes, indeed, folks, we are in the space between stories, in the space between a story of separation, conquest, exploitation, control, and a story of interbeing, reciprocal identity, distributed intelligence, and a deep listening to the wisdom of a body bigger than our definitions and a mind that until recently we didn't know as ours. But before we jump into this awesome conversation, a quick thanks to everyone who has been supporting this show on Patreon, donating a couple bucks or more each month. I've started releasing some of these episodes in their original unedited video format to patrons at the $5 level and up, and I am queuing up a rather epic schedule of exclusive patrons-only episodes for this show as well. So if you'd like to take a deeper dive into this stuff, you can head on over to patreon.com slash Michael Garfield and explore the extensive archives of free stuff I have there for you as well. Special shout out this week to new patron Ikiu Sojun, aka Mimetic Value on Twitter, one of the so-called hypermoderns and underground but emerging school of philosophers. I had the maestro of hypermodern philosophy, John David Ebert, on this show for episode 65. We had an extraordinary conversation about the limits of utopian thinking and the past and future of the human attempt to steal fire from the gods. Highly recommended. And also, big thanks to this show's featured sponsor, transhumanity.net, which, whatever you think you know about transhumanism, I have been extremely impressed with the breadth and quality of conversations that this site hosts. If the inclusion of future fossils into their very short roster of supported podcasts is any indication, transhumanity.net is about exploring the fullness of human potential and facilitating conversations about the ethical strategies for moving beyond what we now call civilization and into a more psychedelic world than we can imagine. Also, we are climbing up to nearly 100 reviews on iTunes, for which I am extremely grateful. The more people we get commenting on this show the more likely it will be discovered by folks who will enjoy it and benefit from it that would never find it through friend recommendations or social media. And that's awesome. The more people we can get into the Future Fossils Facebook group, which remains a free hub for conversations about the show as well as a place to post interesting news, obviously the better. The Future Fossils group is one of the only reasons that I continue to use Facebook and a major source of inspiration and friendship in my life. So thanks to all 1,300 plus of you sharing and commenting in that group as well. Lastly, if you live in the Toronto area, 
I will be attending the Blockchain Futurist Conference on August 15th and 16th, from which I will be doing flash interviews over Facebook Live, as well as taking copious notes and preparing some critical counterpoint, I'm sure. As anyone who listened to episode 81, where I interviewed Arthur Brock of Holochain, knows that's one I highly recommend for fans of Charles Eisenstein as well, where we, we really get into the deep end about the failures of capitalism and the money system and how a deeper listening to nature can inform the design of new ethical currencies. Well, that's it, folks, for now. I release you into the open ocean of this lovely dialogue. Thanks so much for listening and enjoy. Charles Eisenstein, welcome on board Future Fossils. Thank you for having me. Yeah, thanks for being a future fossil. If my plan goes according and uh, this ends up inscribed in quartz and like launched it to the moon or whatever, then worst case scenario is someone will still find and benefit from this conversation in a billion years. So, that, so yeah, that's why it's called future fossil. Yeah, well, I mean, the, the, the premise of this show is, you know, there's a sense in which all moments are simultaneous that our sense of what encompasses now is based on sort of, you know, the limitations of our nervous system. And maybe from a deeper, wider perspective, we would have a deeper, wider now, you know, that a, a slower wavelength, the now of like a star encompasses maybe, you know, thousands of years rather than just a few, you know, fractions of a second. And so in that now, then what we think of as our relative future is happening already. So what happens when we live in light of, of that, you know, the, in light of the fact that the, the future is present and, and active in, in some kind of a, an exchange. So that theme, I feel, you know, your concern for the ancestors and the descendants, I think, is really present in, in your work. And, you know, in this notion that, you know, we have a, uh, an opportunity to step into a new and ancient story, that piece of it, it feels like your sensitivity to the stories that we have lost and can re recover or restore, you know, as a, a sensitivity to the living presence of ancestors and that your attention to the more beautiful world our hearts know is possible is an attention to the sort of silent presence of our descendants in every conversation. And so that's, that's where I'm coming from in this. I, I'm, I'm curious, I think your story uh, and how you came into this is, is the right place to start. You know, I, I found your work in 2010 and I listened to the ascent of humanity on audiobook, the very spirited uh, volunteer reading. Uh, I forget yeah. who her name, but the, you had a, a fan. Did for you. And this book is such a thorough damnation of the world that I was brought up in and, and that you were brought up in. 
you know, it, it really un, a deeply disturbing and unsettling work, you know, that made me question or really sort of answered an unvoiced question in my heart about what's wrong. And mm-hmm. I think that that's maybe the right the right place to open this is in, sure. in your story and how you came to writing that work and why. Yeah, the book, on one level, it is kind of a general critique of civilization. But it's not just that, because one of the tributaries that fed into that book was that I had been reading a lot of critiques of civilization from people like John Zerzan, Daniel Quinn, Derek Jensen, you know, and these were all very dark. A deep thread of despair permeated all of these books. Lewis Mumford, I was reading too, he's not as much of a doom and gloom person. He, He sees beauty in civilization as well. But, but, you know, these were feeding into it. And there was one part of the anti-civ position that I really couldn't accept, which was essentially that this is all just one big, horrifying, heinous mistake. (laughs) And that these gifts that we have that have allowed us to, to do what we've done to each other and to the planet have no purpose and are irredeemable. I thought that when I really looked into the origins and development of civilization, it seemed kind of inevitable that all of this was going to happen. And in fact, anywhere where it could happen, where there were the necessary natural resources, it did happen. Independently, civilization and all that civilization does happen separately in China, India, Mesopotamia, North America, South America. Like it arose independently in all these places. And the same thing happened with variations everywhere. Uh, Social hierarchies, war, um, patriarchy, slavery, uh, money, like all the same things happened everywhere. So I got to thinking that if it was inevitable, then it must be part of a larger process. And that's what gets me into this new and ancient story thing, because what does the course of separation, the ascent of humanity, the, the ascent of the separate self, where, why did that happen and where is that taking us? What does it make possible? And what does the reunion look like when we've completed the journey of separation and then return back to where we came from at a higher level of organization and integration? Uh, so the new and ancient story is drawing, like one way to look at it is it's drawing on ancient roots. Uh, but what's new is its application in a mass society. And there's another sense that maybe is it's a bit more esoteric, uh, that the story, even if it's new, it's also ancient in its fullness. And that's because it exists outside of time and breaks into time sporadically throughout history. So it's kind of a, an attractor, even though it's not necessarily at the end of linear time as we know it, a place that we're going toward. It still pulls us, uh, along with many other stories that coexist and that also seem very real and that also seem like a destination that we might end up at. In my new book, I call it the, the concrete world. Mm. And, you know, it's where nature has been replaced by technology, basically, and Algae pools make oxygen and carbon sucking machines moderate the, modulate the climate and 
and you know we eat synthetic food and everything is dead except for us but we have virtual reality to make up for it and like that's a future too and like some on some days oh and it includes totalitarian mind control you know and, oh, of course uh, yes yeah and like on some days it feels like that is where we're headed also the other part is simply that that practically speaking the new the new story how can I say it without sounding like a cliche in, you know, participation and partnership with nature rather than domination over nature, uh, a story of interbeing where we understand we're not separate selves in a universe of other, et cetera, et cetera. It's not new. Indigenous people have had that understanding for a long time. So in that sense, it's drawing from ancient roots. Mm. In pulling from recent writing, you've got a great piece up critiquing the ideology of development, our new happy life, and a line in here, and I'd like to, it, you know, this is the right place, I think, to dive in. You've got a, a line in here real quickly. You say, people in older cultures connected to community and place held close in a lineage of ancestors woven into a web of personal and cultural stories radiate a kind of solidity and presence that I rarely find in any modern person. When I interact with one of them, I know that whatever the measurable gains of the ascent of humanity, we've lost something immeasurably precious. And I know that until we recognize it and turn toward its recovery, that no further progress in lifespan or GDP or educational attainment will bring us closer to any place worth going. So there's something in your work. I feel it's, it's rare in the conversation between the sort of techno-optimist boosterism of the ideology of progress and what you're talking about, like the John Zerzan, like anti-civilization voice, which is, you know, a, in some respects, like a, uh, kind of a refreshing counter perspective where it's just like, no, just no to all of that. Mm -hmm. But there's this thing in your writing that I see in also in some of the, the Buddhist writing on this about the radical acceptance of the work of grief that we're, we're sort of faced with here. And, and embrace, like you said, it's like, this is a thing that has shown up, that civilization in this form that you critique has shown up again and again and again. So there's some inclusive both and perspective that you seem to be you know, pointing toward in your work where we have to embrace all of this stuff rather than just kicking away from it. When I told my friends that I would be speaking to you, one of the things that came up again and again was to ask you about how you, you know, someone who has so eloquently defended, you know, the rights of the living world, you know, said that it, global warming rhetoric doesn't provide us with an adequate justification for protecting the elephant, for example, you know, right. what does getting back to nature in some sense look like when you're actually sort of actively interrogating the boundary between humans and the wilderness between nature and culture? Okay. <laughs> it's a too big of a question. Yeah, I mean, it seems like a rather sophisticated question. Uh, you basically, so human and nature, that distinction, like most binary distinctions, dissolves when you examine the boundary too closely. But that doesn't mean that the distinction is not useful. So... If you really like pressed me to define, well, what does it mean to get back to nature or something like that? I wouldn't want to go to a definition. Mm. 
it's more of something that it's 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 more of a direction that we recognize rather than an absolute principle because if you really dig deep i mean you know we're natural we're 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 beings of nature we everything we build is natural just like an ant nest or a termite mound is natural by the same principle like we're, it's natural so i think that really the the essence of it is the understanding that we are not the only self that humans are not the only self and the, or the only intelligence in the world in the old story the story of separation the world outside of the human realm is essentially random it's a bunch of arbitrary forces operating on generic purposeless masses so for there to be order or intelligence or design of any kind we have to impose that we have to order that which is not ordered we have to bring intelligence to that which has no intelligence we have to impose purpose upon which that which does not inherently have any kind of purpose any kind of evolutionary direction evolution in that story is ran- is a random process in other words what that story says is that the f- qualities of a full self inherit in human beings alone and this is contrary to what every culture believed up until very recently other cultures understood that that other beings had beingness and that the world itself had beingness when we accept that principle then it is no longer a matter of progress via increasing domination but it is participation in what is possible that includes us so that participation begins with listening and that listening is motivated even by accepting that there's something to listen to that there's something that wants to happen what wants to happen and how can we participate in that how can we exercise our gifts in service to this larger thing so that sounds like an abstract thing but then you can apply it very specifically to say agriculture where instead of extracting as much as possible from the land and and manipulating the land in order to maximize its yield we say well what wants to happen here and how can i contribute to that how can i increase the capacity of all beings here to give toward this result so you know you get into things like regenerative agriculture and building soil and increasing biodiversity and things like that so that all gift giving beings who want to participate in something larger than self can do so and and i think this is much more important much more relevant than imitating indigenous rituals and having them as side decoration on top of life as normal <laughs> it's not the actual content of the rituals it's the spirit motivating the rituals which is we are communicating with something that listens to them the rituals are not just rituals they're real just like i don't know like what if i said that when you're using your cell phone and pressing those buttons and swiping your finger across it you're just engaged in mumbo jumbo rituals like in a way they are very similar to rituals so is swiping a credit card you know like you have this magic device and you're performing rituals on it but that doesn't seem insane to you because you're actually communicating with something there's a great example of both sides of what you're talking about i saw this thing circulating on social media about a dog that had been watching people come up to the counter at this cafe and pay paper bills for cookies 
And so the yeah. dog started bringing leaves up to the counter and getting paid in cookies. And yeah. it's like, there it is. There's your reminder that there's a, an interiority, a sentience to the rest of this. That's like paying attention. It found some sense in these, you know, these things that we take to have a particular, you know, content meaning, but anyway. Yeah. yeah I think one reason that, that money, the use of money comes so naturally to us is that it is a type of a ritual. Like the mind, the human mind, ritual is its native territory. I mean, here you exchange a piece of paper with deified presidents and magical symbols written on it. That is like a sacred writ of some sort. And you exchange it and like uh, someone gives you food, gives you cookies, gives you all this stuff. And all you have to do is give them a magic piece of paper. Like that's totally ritualistic. So rituals gain their power from the stories that they're embedded in. And there's a certain story or set of agreements that tells us that money is valuable and that we should all accept this as a ritual. And so one reason that it feels a little bit pretend to engage in rituals that we may have learned from yoga or from some indigenous culture is that the the dominant story that we live in doesn't countenance that these could actually be doing anything. And so, you know, until that deeper shift in our perceptions of the world happens, then the only rituals that will make sense are the ones that we don't even think are rituals. They go by the names of law, medicine, money, and technology. Those are the most powerful realms of ritual that we have. From another lens, boy, it looks like we're a bunch of superstitious savages, you know, <laughs> like going to the doctor and first there's like a, a vestibule that you wait in and you don't get to see the shaman for 45 minutes. Um, so first you go through like a little humiliation ritual and you have to write things on forms. You don't even read the forms, but you, you, you put your sacred mark on them. And then those get put in a special box called a file cabinet, but it's like a, a, a sacred box. And then like you are ushered into another room where the sacred procedures take place. It's so ritualistic, but we don't think that's a ritual because we have a story that names why each one of these actions is necessary and real. I mean, if you go even further, like especially surgery, you know, you have a highly trained adept who's gone through an initiation ordeal himself called medical school, uh, after which he gets a ceremonial name change and a document written in an archaic language, Latin. Uh, and then, you know, you go into the sacred chamber and you're put into an altered state of consciousness with a potion that's injected into you. And then a ritual scarification is performed on your body and you're magically healed. And there's even a ritual hand washing before, I mean, the whole thing, right? And technology even you can see as a very, very highly elaborated set of rituals. So the rituals that we call medicine, law, technology, and money, they are embedded in a world story that essentially holds the world as, as dead and that holds us as the only full beings in that world. So it is no wonder then that the rituals that come from this story create the very image of that story. In other words, that they kill the rest of life. So if we want another future that's not the concrete world, we need a story that holds the rest of creation as alive, as conscious, as intelligent, as 
having purpose, as having subjectivity, beingness. And then the rituals that come from that story will create the image of that story. And we will live in a magical reality, a magical world where more and more we get confirmation that we're not alone here and that we are part of an unfolding that's bigger than what we could create. So part of that is not even like, even like the kind of new age technologies for creation and manifestation don't fully appreciate that simply because they're like, okay, we'll start by creating your vision. Whereas if you understand that there's a vision out there already, then it's more a matter of listening for the vision, mm-hmm. aligning with the vision, but not creating it. The new age stuff is still like, you know, the master of the universe sitting right here in this chair, manifesting and, and, you know, believing things into existence and so forth. It's not that humble. Where do our beliefs come from? And when you have a vision, where does that come from? So the weird thing about this in, you know, this, uh, this is where I, I think I'll enjoy playing with you in this, this seemingly paradoxical space is that uh, Yuval Harari gave a talk at Google years ago about this, where he, he pointed to a set of beliefs emerging from the sciences as the new religion of Silicon Valley. And one of the things that he pointed to was this notion that there isn't this liberal actor, this separate self that lives in the head that is somehow, you know, qualitatively distinct uh, from, mm-hmm. the, you know, the rest of the world. And that, you know, this Adam self that we've based all of modernity on He's like, is being eroded by everything that we're learning from ecology and everything that we're learning from neuroscience. And it's bringing us into this weird, like Stanford Research Institute, cybernetic self Mm -hmm. as like machine, like the same trends, the same evidence in science that is bringing us to this notion that the world is alive. Uh, And Timothy Morton talks about this too in his book, Hyper Objects, is also Mm -hmm. emptying the exceptionalism, the priority on our subjectivity out of the human being. And it's making us, in some sense, like we're, we're accepting our own role as robots programmed by an environment of causal influences that can be, you know, manipulated through social engineering. Like you talk about the, the sort of dystopian mind control possibility. But like right. that seems like the shadow of the same inheritance of us coming into, like we accept that a world is magical through the same uh, technological momentum that's pushing us into, like Eric Davis talks about, a world of uh, responsive smart home devices that are talking to us. And so we have this weird sort of neo-animism where you're interacting with intelligent crystals in your house and stuff. So I'm the thing that I hear in all of this is that this new and ancient story reasserts itself specifically through what Doug Rushkoff calls narrative collapse. That like, there's something about like, we're pushing this to the level of observation where we can't indulge a sort of simplified, convenient narrative about our independence, but it's pushing us weirdly into and weird is the, like the right word for it, right? It's like the self in the other into a space where we have an opportunity to see the planet as alive in a way that is valid 
But at the same time, it has to change our own sort of moral estimation of what it means to be a human. And yeah, and what do you, how do you make sense yeah. of that? Yeah, okay, there's a few things coming up with that. One is the principle that anything taken to its extreme gives birth to its opposite. Mm. So science uh, of modernity taking the uh, atomic self, the neoliberal subject to its extreme and taking apart reality through analytic methods till it, we end up just with a bunch of nodes and, and lines that gives birth to cybernetics, gives birth to complexity theory. Like when we, when we try to, when we try to simplify everything through an analytic method, then we discovered that it's impossible to do that. Same thing happening with quantum mechanics, trying to find like the smallest Newtonian objects and the, and the most basic deterministic laws led instead to a causality and indeterminism and observer dependence. So that's, that's one thing that's going on here. Also, I think that one way in which we're, which all this, so it's a part of a revolution, but one way in which all this complexity theory and cybernetics is still only a partial revolution is a basal assumption that we can effectively or adequately simulate reality through quantitative methods. Mm that a neural network, for example, can be intelligent in the same way that a body is intelligent because all that, you know, it's kind of the model of the brain as, as a neural network. I mean, in fact, that's why it's called a neural network. You know, it's a bunch of nodes that have a binary or perhaps if you're really sophisticated, more than just a binary, but a finite set of states and you know, signals go around and they turn on and off, you know, and, and yes, you can have emergent phenomena from that. You have complexity, you have nonlinearity, but in the end, it's still a bunch of on off switches. So it's a model of intelligence. It's, it's modeling intelligence on the computer, which is not, you know, like back in the age of the steam engine, people modeled the body on the machine, you know, and now the most prominent technology is the computer. So we model, we try to understand humans. Oh, well, actually we're computers. Whereas it used to be, oh, actually we're machines. And I think that you can capture or simulate some aspects of intelligence through quantitative methods. But you are always going to leave something out. You're going to leave the things that you can't measure or don't know how to measure or that are unmeasurable. That anything can be unmeasurable. That blatantly goes against one of the primary metaphysical principles of science, which is that everything real can be measured. Science is, in fact, the study of the measurable. If you can't measure it, you cannot do science on it. So, and that's related to objectivity and the repeatability of experiments. So you have to have like a measure outside of yourself um, by which to repeat experiments. So I think that the science and technology that you were talking about, that's a step toward a revolution. But ultimately, I think where we're going to go is to realize the limitations of that kind of science, that way of knowing and the technology that comes from it. But on the other hand, it's also practice for a, a re-entry into the qualitative realm because it's giving us practice to like, um, see intelligence outside of ourselves, for example, to interact with non-human beings in an intelligent way. I still think, though, I won't say that it, AI is fake intelligence, really. But, you know, like the intelligence of a brain, it's not just in the neural states. There's also 
the glial cells. There's also like the chemistry underneath it. Like what if you say, yeah, the neurons are alive also and intelligent in and of themselves. And every piece of them, the proteins, those are intelligent in and of themselves. Or that there is an intelligence operating through all of these things. So nonetheless, the revolution in science is eroding the notion of a separate self. So I think it is, it is a step on a very long road toward a new story. There's something in there about, also, you were the one who introduced me to the critique of the reproducibility of an experiment in the first place. And it's like, yeah. again, with this, this thing about the more carefully we look, the more we realize that there were all of these fuzzy or, or squishy factors outside of the purview of the design of the experiment. And that seems to you know, contribute to this notion of, of the collapse of, like you were saying, you know, the quantum movement into the A-causal. So in a world like this, where this, what you call a story, and I think what will be narrativized simply as because of the human reflex to, to myth and to story, but in some, in some sense, it seems like it's bigger than our ability to simplify into like a linear story or even an ecosystem of stories. And that there's a sense in which what you're pointing to maybe is something to which storytelling is insufficient. And I'm curious, you know, because I think about that with like the extropians, right? I, sometimes in spite of myself, I like to bring this back to like this, like fiercely futuristic stuff, just, you know, to strike an idea against it. And it, I keep thinking about how Kevin Kelly in his book, What Technology Wants, on one level, he is doing a very similar thing to what you're doing in your work. You know, he, he looks at the convergent evolution of ideas and how these, you know, inventions appear in multiple places at the same time. And so he tells a, a myth of thermodynamic inevitability and the, you know, the emergence of new forms of intelligence. And he, you know, he describes all of technology as an outgrowth or a, you know, a kingdom of life. But then there's this, that same myth is often appropriated by those, those same sort of ideological progress worshipers to say, you know, we're building a machine God and the wreckage of the biosphere is a sort of necessary developmental step. You know, it's, it's a part of the metamorphosis into this, this newer and even more alive and intelligent thing. And clearly that's an apologetic for some intensely messed up stuff, you know, like for ecocide, basically. So where do you see that kind of worldview falling short? To me, it seems like it's almost in the attempt to fit what's happening now into any kind of a narrative structure in the first place, you know? Yeah. I think it's it's a salutary impulse to bring attention to the fundamental limitations of story to begin with. I'm not actually a story fundamentalist. When I like, even if I say the world is built from story, I also recognize that that itself is also a story. I look at the, um, story of interbeing, for example, as really just a the ideological layer of an organism that is far deeper than story. Story is about symbol. 
it's a it's a it's a, an assigning of meanings to to symbols, uh, and the organization of agreements through those symbols and meanings. So, yeah, like the ideological layer, as in ideology, as in a logos of ideas. So you can learn a lot about or understand a lot, I think, about where uh, society is going or might go through studying the evolution of our stories. And that study bears a limit. And perhaps you might understand a lot more or understand a lot differently through totally different ways of knowing that might be based in dance, you know, or psychedelic journeying to translinguistic places that are not about story or I don't know. I mean, there's, there's many other ways to know and we kind of give priority because we're conditioned through a story that says only the measurable is real. So we're conditioned to give priority to ways of knowing that have to do with putting things into, into categories, which is a way of kind of domesticating the world Mm. through symbol. And I think it's a mistake to discard that way of knowing entirely. The question is, what are the limitations of that way of knowing and what is its proper application? And you may even say that the ascent of humanity, the last at least few centuries of modernity, but probably going back a lot further, has been the phase of human evolution in which we develop those particular gifts, that particular way of knowing. And wow, boy, it really works. It's really fantastic. So then we apply it way beyond its proper purview and learn that it's meant for certain things and not meant for other things. And that the paradise of of technological utopia, where we would engineer society for maximum happiness and engineer our brains for maximum happiness, that it's not working. And, And the ideology that says that we will achieve happiness that way but that ideology is running out of gas. You know, it still still operates, but we believe it less and less because you need more and more denial, I think, to say that, yeah, we're happier than ever, happier than our parents, who are happier than their parents and who are much happier than the benighted savages in hunter-gatherer time or, you know, peasants in, in Ladakh or Peru or something like that. And yeah, I mean, you can weave a pretty strong narrative that says, yes, we are getting better and better. That to go back to the Steven Pinker article, and which which I critiqued, that's, yeah, there's less violence, less murder, more literacy, lower poverty, et cetera, et cetera. And essentially, my critique was looking at the things that we can and do measure, it looks better and better. But what about the things that we're not measuring or that we that we are measuring but ignoring, like suicide, depression, things like that. And what about just like the loss of authenticity, intimacy, vibrancy, connection and belonging that you go somewhere where those things are still present and you're like, wow, I'm not even a full human being. Like I'm accepting a pale semblance of what life could really be. How much access do we even have to those experiences anymore? as the cultures where they are available are getting strip mined and converted into the monoculture. But, you know, some of us are so fortunate enough to get in touch with aspects of well-being that are not in the statistics. And when we get in touch with those, then we realize that progress as currently formulated 
is not real progress, that we're not getting any closer at all to the fulfillment of human potential. Or maybe we're getting closer along one very narrow axis of development, but there is so much more to a fully expressed human being than we're even moving toward. And in fact, we're moving away from it in a lot of ways. And if you've had an experience like that, that, that's a precious experience. And that information needs to be brought into the collective mind so that we can have a, an accurate sense of value and, and what's important and where we want to go. Like it need, we need that information to go anywhere else but the technological dystopian world. You mentioned the inadequacy of the computer metaphor, you know, that we have, we move through these sort of dominant technological metaphors to describe life and mind. And it seems like in the messy convergence of things that we see going, you know, this, this, uh, there's a possibility that maybe the, the ecosystem is the next technological metaphor you know, like right. you look at like the microbiome and, and this kind of thing and people talking about like your iPhone and your iPad as being part of a technological ecosystem, that there's that there's like a crossover happening here. I'm curious if you think that or maybe if something else, what do you see replacing the computer in the way that we are, you think we're going to be talking about this stuff in the years to come? And like, how yeah. do you think that'll change the way that we relate to the uh, network? Yeah, it's the network. Yeah. I mean, this, this change is already happening where the brain is, or the self is looked at no longer as a modularly organized computer, but rather a um, emergent uh, nonlinear network. I mean, a standard computer is not nonlinear. You know, tasks are divided up, you know, and that's changing now with neural network, machine learning kind of things where you know, it's no longer that we divide up the task and, and calculate it out by brute force, you know, but we kind of allow the network to program itself to solve the problem. And the, the sacrifice we make is that we, in the end, we don't actually understand how the problem is solved. <laughs> yes. So, so it's, it's, it's not the dismantling of the mystery, but it's bringing the mystery into the machine, you know. So that issue, the issue of this Arthur C. Clarke's any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic, you know, right. touches on uh, what you, you mentioned earlier that, you know, there's a sense in which like the magical object is magical precisely because it has some control over you. Like the phone, like we all know the phone is magical because it controls your behavior, you know, mm. and, and that seems to, that pours back into this idea of the self being distributed right yeah. like that there's not a boundary so what is the healthy expression of this you know when i think about like what seem in some sense almost like naive visions of a future in which you know like william Irwin thompson talked a lot about this in the 70s about technology miniaturizing until the point where we sort of we live in this almost like a what he called the entelechy like this alchemical elemental thing where the rocks have quickened and have become computers and we're working in gardens in, you know, in some sort of rich, satisfying collaboration between the animal, vegetable and mineral. That seems, uh, I don't know, maybe I'm too cynical and that seems like it's receded somewhat, but I'm curious <laughs> if you think that there is, 
that there is some like that we're we're moving into some sort of healthy synthesis here or or like what is the best outcome that you think yeah. maybe doesn't require a total precipitous shift in you know the way that we see things from here well i i mean i don't think it's receded i think that it has taken root and that a lot of people are are following various developmental threads uh that originated with those thinkers back in the 60s and 70s the one that i'm most familiar with is in the agricultural realm where this I can't remember how you described it, but this like magical cooperation between animal, vegetable, and mineral, like that's happening. You know, people are understanding that the soil microbiome is related to the earthworms, which are related to the water cycle, which are, you know, related to the roots of the plants. And the, I mean, there's just, we're understanding the ecological interrelationships of life and asking how do we participate in those in a healthy way? And understanding that the more empathic our participation, the better off we will be too. So realizing that we're not really separate in our well-being from these other beings. Like this is informing an entire movement in agriculture right now and in holistic medicine too, I would say. Do you think we can be too empathic? Well, um, give me an example. Again, to nod to Doug Rushkoff, he talks about fractal noia, where, uh -huh. you know, because we're, we're so connected to everything that's going on everywhere on the planet, you know, there's a tsunami happens antipodally to you. And you st I remember when the Indonesian tsunami hit and I saw this stuff happening on the news and I was crying for people I didn't know. And it's creating psychic and emotional challenges for people living in this time that we don't seem to know how to deal with. And people are shutting themselves off from valuable, relevant information because they can't handle the rawness, the sensitivity to being this permeable to the experience of other people. And I wonder, like, at what point does, in, in the sort of collapse of foreground and background, is it too much? And we're actually harming a person's ability to participate in an integrated way, you know? So in the cabin we were staying at here on my brother's farm, there was a, a bird's nest outside and there were four little baby birds in there and they would sit there with their mouths wide open and the parents would come and feed them all day. I mean, those parents were working hard <laughs> and the birds grew until they were really crowded in that nest. Uh, and then this has happened over two weeks. I didn't take them long to grow up, you know. Um, and then one day, there was one of the birds on the ground. One of the baby birds was on the ground because it had gotten pushed out of the nest by the others. There wasn't room for four. Mm. And there it was, forlorn, helpless, and ignored, and it died. And a couple days later, another bird, it grew some more, and another one got jostled out of the nest and fell to a... Uh, lonely, miserable death by starvation on the ground. And I think we tried to feed one of them, actually, but it wouldn't open its mouth. <laughs> it wouldn't open its mouth. Like, in nature, that kind of shit happens all the time. All those cute little baby bunnies, you know? Almost every single one of them gets eaten by something. So, I, I think that 
we might look into like, what are we really talking about with empathy here? Are we talking about letting in the pain of the entire world and feeling fully what all beings are feeling? I think on some level, we all do feel what all beings are feeling. Mm. We don't know what it is we're feeling. We're not conscious of it. And we're also feeling like the, the triumph of the birds that finally, you know, when they fi are finally fledged, sometimes something happens that, so we, yeah, we have like natural boundaries that allow us to operate and to fulfill our purpose in the evolution of all. And those boundaries, they themselves evolve over time. And sometimes they can get too rigid and too hard and stymie the growth of the organism that is ourselves, our true self, inside of those boundaries. And, and, and at such times, they need to be breached. So, yeah, sometimes we hear about a tragedy. We see the photographs of, of people suffering, of an immigrant washed up on a beach, you know, of sort of separated from his mother or... We see you know, the, the clear cut, you know, forest. We see like some things that just that read about a school shooting. It pierces, it, it breaches the boundaries. And perhaps when, when we allow ourselves to feel what comes in, like maybe we do need moments or periods where we feel it all, where we, we can weep for every one of those baby birds and, and all of the suffering of all creation. Like maybe we need to go through a phase um, of that once in a while to cycle through that once in a while. And, and sometimes like, cause sometimes the grief just seems all out of proportion to what actually happens. It could be anything that opens up the container for a little while so that we don't get stuck in the container of the separate self, even though we need that vehicle to participate in the world. I kind of tend to just trust it when something opens me up like that. Mm. And, and because then when I reformulate a, after that opening, I have changed a little bit and maybe the nature of the boundary has, has changed and, and it's, it's grown and it encompasses more. And my participation in the world then takes into account that you know, there are children being separated from their parents right now in immigration detention centers, you know, or whatever the issue is that's gotten under your skin. The boundary is a, it's a different boundary and maintained in a different way. And we participate differently. I think that when we feel overwhelmed about the pain in the world, really what's happening is that there is an internal wound that has ripened to the point of of needing and wanting to be exposed to the light of consciousness, needing and wanting to be felt so that healing can happen. And that wound will attract its mirror in the world that will help bring it to the surface. And that's why different horrors in the world reach different people in different ways. And what might get under your skin won't get under my skin. And then there's certain things that are just like, I just can't deal, you know, like, like I can't even watch a movie where something bad happens to a baby. Mm. Like, uh, what was it? Train spotting? I think it was. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I just can't even, I cannot even go there. Like that just, 
you know, and then and even like moderately bad things happening to babies that just like sends me totally into grief. And if I can allow that, I do think it brings some kind of healing to me. And yeah, like maybe I could get addicted to grief stories and things like that. Like there's that too. I don't want to get it overcomplicated here. Yeah. Yeah. But, but there's do, definitely, yeah. I do wonder about that, you know, cause I rem- you're talking about this brought up a few years ago when my partner and I were sitting in ayahuasca ceremony talking about how we felt like we had immediate access in that moment to the grief of every mother who'd lost a child to war. Right. And walking around with that all the time, not possible. But, you know, I realized after that session, there are people who are seemingly sort of like gluttons for punishment, like <laughs> addicted to the like karmic repair work, you know, this, this, uh, the narrative that they're holding up a pillar temple for humankind somehow yeah. working in that space, you know, they become like uh purgeaholics or something. And all right. So here's the thing. What's important is for what you do in the world to make sense, given all the things that are happening on this planet and in the cosmos, even sometimes I ask myself, like when I, hear about some horrible thing, the rhinos going extinct in cages. And I imagine myself face to face with one of them. And maybe it's the last northern white rhino. Uh, I think that's the, the latest subspecies that's gone extinct. I think there's some in zoos, right? And I'm, I'm, and I'm like face to face with the last one. And she says, so while I was going extinct, what were you doing? I need the answer. There's like a really deep part of me that needs to be able to look her in the eye and for my answer to be acceptable to her. And the answer doesn't have to be, well, I was doing my best to save the white rhino. It doesn't Mm. have to be that. If I say I spent 20 years trying to free a man from death row, um, she'll be like, okay, I'm satisfied. So if there is and I don't want to be like a purist about this, but all of us are in a journey toward greater and greater service. And if you are at a place in your journey where there is a natural next step that wants to happen in a deepening next step, that next step will be into greater alignment with what makes sense given all that's happening in the world. Then a new aspect of what's happening in the world will come to you. That will pose the question, okay, is what you're doing make sense given this new data point? Like maybe before you were picking up the litter in the park and putting it in the trash can and feeling like you're in service and I'm doing something really important. And then one day you get a tour of the dump where all that litter is going and it's flowing into the river and out to sea. (laughs) And you're like, shit, what I was doing didn't take this into account. I've let in another part of the suffering. I've let in something, something, and it's all there already on a cellular level, but something else has risen to the surface into consciousness. And now that new data point changes what makes sense to me. And it gives voice to that growing feeling of discontent that I'd had picking up the litter in the park. You know, that, that, or whatever like job you might have, you know, like, like it seemed fine according to everything that had been told to me about how to be a successful person, how to be a good man, how to be a contributing member of society. 
And there I was doing pharmaceutical research, making medicines and getting a good salary and everything was fine, you know, and supporting a family. And maybe it felt honestly fully fine for a while. But then at some point, there's a disquiet that grows. There's things that don't add up. And I kind of put them aside, but that feeling grows and grows and grows. And that is, and then there's a, and I notice that I'm starting to sabotage myself and not want to go to work and get addicted to things. And there's something wrong here. I, I don't feel like I'm living the life I should be living. That disquiet exerts a magnetic power that will bring experiences or bring you know, encounters into, into that person's life that validate the disquiet and answer that question. Oh, here's why, you know, here's something. Yeah. Like, and, and then a change is possible because now the person's consciously aware there's things I care about that my job now is contradicting. There's injustice here that I'm part of, and I'm not here to do that. So, yeah, I mean, so I think like to go back to the to the fractal noia, fractal noia or whatever, mm -hmm. you know, it's not like this either or thing of let it all in or not, you know, and, and I think that there's an organic rhythm or an organic wisdom to our opening and to the what gets attracted in that disrupts us. There's an incredible intelligence at work here. Mm. So like in that disquiet, I think about what you just said and the difference between that drive toward full cost accounting, basically, you know, to like right. bring the money piece back in that, that the disquiet is a growing awareness in science. It's the anomalous data, but in, exactly. uh, but in economics, it's externals, you know, a sudden right. awareness of the fact that like you mentioned again in. I think in the uh, the piece you said why I am afraid of global cooling that you just put up, yeah, that the whales circulate nutrients from the different trophic layers of the ocean. So suddenly there's a thing that we rely on that we were completely oblivious to, and now it's a piece of the economic equation. And that the difference between the sort of like oh well you just you do you you know that this this notion that that we just sort of follow our own personal voice is a very different thing from this drive towards a growing integration and inclusion. So I'm curious how you see this. Maybe this is like the place to end it. Boots on the ground. Um, mm -hmm. How you see this with respect to the future of money and the way that I emailed you about this a while ago and I, it may have fallen flat. I don't know if you want to talk about this at all, but it seems like right now, like your writing and the cryptocurrency thing kind of landed in the world at the same time. And what we're yeah. seeing in that space is a worldwide interrogation of these rituals that you talked about earlier in the call, you know, and saying, oh, wait a minute, how do we place value on something? How do we determine the value of this consensus appreciation for the dollar or Bitcoin or whatever it is? And then this drive to measure, to quantify all of the different possible kinds of value, which in one sense is very, again, it's like in one sense, very hopeful and optimistic that we're sort of taking back the ability to declare something valuable on our own. And in another sense, seems like it's driving this whole, like the myth of measurability to like completely over the cliff. 
Yeah. So where, you know, how do you see this being responsibly integrated into the way that we handle value or like what Arthur Brock calls currency and that it makes the currents of value, the flows of value visible? You know, how do we do this in a way that doesn't just reduce everything to units? Yeah, I think we have to, similar to what I was saying before, we have to be cognizant of the reduction that inevitably happens when we assign values to things. And, you know, if we're aware of that, then we can use that particular technology for what it's meant for or what it's useful for and be careful not to expand it beyond its proper bounds. And that gets into some of the more nitty gritty of currency design, because one of the things that makes it expand is a money creation process based on interest bearing debt. So, yeah, one way to translate the humble awareness of the limitations of quantified value is to design currencies that do not need to grow in order to survive. For example, by implementing negative interest on currencies. You know, I get invited sometimes to speak to crypto gatherings, and I often do point out to the limits of quantification and the dangers inherent in that, which is... You know, like we were talking about science and how a fundamental metaphysical tenet of science is that everything is measurable. And and it's kind of a program. You can look at science as a program of reducing the entire world to number. Well, where did we get that idea? I think we might have got it from the money world, where so much of what is valuable in so many ways and so many values get reduced to one linear standard of value. So there's only one question then, how much is it worth? How many dollars is it worth? Whereas before money thinking became established, you wouldn't even have a way to say how much is it worth? What is it worth? Like you would value different things for different reasons and understand that different people valued them in different ways. There wasn't a reductive standard. And that monetization of social life came way before the scientific revolution. So I think that the money conversation is really crucial to a uh, transition in our operating stories. Like it goes all the way to the metaphysical level. Like an unzipping everything back into the commons, possibly as, as one sort of counterforce to that. Yeah. I mean, that that's related, I guess it's that that's about renegotiating the agreements that we call property. Because property itself is also an agreement. It's not an absolute objective thing, much as libertarians would like it to be. It's always a matter of social agreement. So the question isn't, should we have private property or not? The question is, what are the agreements that give people more or less right to use things in certain ways? And how do we come to those agreements? That's the question. And this gets into crypto stuff, too, because there's kind of this impulse or or this yearning to somehow have those messy social political processes be replaced by a nice clean algorithm. And that is a delusion. (laughs) And I could go into that a lot more. And I do when I have the opportunity. But, you know, we get into forking and and the process by which algorithms are created and who benefits and all kinds of stuff like that. So maybe 
it goes back to the black box issue, you know, that this we're back to putting our faith in something we don't understand. Yeah. Well, Charles, it's been a delight and the satisfaction of a long held desire to have you here with me for this. And, and I really appreciate it and thank you for it. Yeah, this was fun. I enjoyed too. I'd love to have you back, but first, where can people find you? Where do you want to send them? Do you have anything cool coming up? And then also let's end it with assuming that this is a time capsule to the distant future. If you have a a message specifically to the unborn listeners of this podcast, what would that be? Okay. Uh, Well, see, people can find me on the interwebs. My website's charleseisenstein.net. I have a book coming out September 18th called Climate, A New Story. Um, I have an online course that I'm working on, too, called Living in the Gift. And as a message to the future, I would thank our descendants for everything they've done to send us the information we need from future to present. And to say that we're doing our best to use it well. So please continue sending it. I love it. Thanks so much for being on the show. Yeah, it was fun. Thanks, Michael. Thanks again for listening. I hope you enjoyed that episode as much as I did. Future Fossils is part of the MindPod network, along with Third Eye Drops, The Astral Hustle, Synchronicity Podcast, and an oodle of other fascinating programs. I encourage you to go to mindpodnetwork.com and subscribe to them all. And stay tuned because we have some awesome episodes coming up on future fossils. But for now, may your now be exquisite, long, and wonderful.